Well, it's been a while since I've been up here to deliver a message, which I think is a very good thing. <laughs> so I'm glad to have a pastor um, full-time. Um, my, my mom had a heart valve replaced many years ago, and she didn't go home two days later. It was... So... And now we'll try to make sure we have the computer do what we're supposed to do. Start recording. Okay, it is. This morning I want to talk about the importance of prophecy. So a lot of people don't like prophecy because you think of the weird animals in the book of Revelation or in Daniel and you think this is really strange stuff. Um, but most prophecy is not like that. Most prophecy is, deals with actual historical events and it's already been fulfilled. We can look back at history and see um, what has happened. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So really, why is prophecy important? I think it's important because it displays God's glory. You know, one of the best ways to appreciate God's abilities, his foreknowledge, his plan, his governance of the, of the universe, <clears throat> is to look at prophecy, <clears throat> and then specifically prophecy that has already been fulfilled. And so we're going to start by looking in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. So you can turn there. So Isaiah uh, lived about 700 B.C., and he prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. So giving a little bit of historical background, after Solomon, the kingdom split. Jeroboam and the ten northern tribes formed the kingdom of Israel, which we call a northern kingdom, and the descendants of David and Solomon remained as the rulers of Judah, the southern kingdom. Well, Jeroboam did not want all the men in his kingdom having to go to Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, three times a year according to the law. The law required that. So he didn't want all his people going to the, to the other nation. So he substituted two golden calves for God. He says to Israel, these are now your God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. Um, you look at the history of the northern kingdom, all their kings were evil. And they worshipped idols continually. It never got better. Uh, but God continued to send them prophets, uh, many prophets, including Isaiah, to warn them that if they did not turn away from these idols to serve the true God, then he would judge them and destroy the nation. So much of Isaiah's message was to proclaim that Jehovah was the true and living God and that their idols were worthless. And there's, his argument had two main points, to contrast God with the idols. The first one was that God created the heavens and the earth. God was the creator. The second one was that the true God foreknew and foreordained future events, and then he disclosed them to his people ahead of time through prophecy. So these were the two main points that God used to distinguish himself from idols, creation and prophecy. 
None of the idols could do this. So looking at Isaiah chapter 45, let's look at verses 11 and 12. So it begins, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. So when he says, ask me about the things to come, he's talking about future events. You want to know what's going to happen in the future? You ask the true God, because he knows. He directs things. Going on to verse 12, It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. So there's creation. God is the creator. Again, idols can't do that. And we see these two ideas together over and over again uh, here in this section of Isaiah from chapter 42 through 48. We'll see these two ideas side by side many times. Here's how God basically proves to the northern kingdom that he is God. He's the creator and he's the God of prophecy. We're going to look at one other example from Isaiah. and Going back to chapter 44... And we're starting in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, and the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. So again, we see creation. That's one of those two proofs that he is the true God. Verse 25 and half of 26 says, causing the omens of the boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, but confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. So here he confounds all the false prophets, those who serve idols, who uh, prophesy falsely. God says he confounds them and he uh, makes fools of them. But on the other hand, his servants, his prophets, whom he sent, he confirms their words. And he makes sure that they come true. Looking at the second half of verse 26, we have an example. It says, It is I who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. So here's a prophecy. The cities of Judah including Jerusalem, will be repopulated and rebuilt. Now remember, this is in 700 B.C. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah are just fine. They won't be destroyed for 100 years when Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys them in five, about 586 B.C. So he's not only prophesying the rebuilding of these cities, but he includes in that prophecy the fact they have to be destroyed first. So here's a prophecy specifically about the cities of Judah. Uh, going on to verse 27. It is I who says to the depths of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. Well, that seems kind of out of place, but he dries up a river. In order to restore Jerusalem and, and Judah, the first thing God had to do was make sure somebody conquered Babylon so the Jews could return. And history tells us that the army of the Medes and the Persians dammed the Euphrates River up 
and walked into Babylon on the dry riverbed. And that's how they got into the city. So we see that foretold here, that they will come in on the dry rivers. But 28, it gets very specific. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. He calls Cyrus specifically by name. Cyrus will not appear for over a century, and yet he names him specifically. We see his name again in chapter 45, verse 1, where he's called Cyrus, my anointed. So Cyrus is called by name. Um, and we also see that Cyrus is the one who is the king of Persia when Babylon was defeated. And as we've been studying in Sunday school class, the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra starts with the defeat of Babylon, and Cyrus issues the decree that sends the Jews back to Jerusalem, and he gives them the money, the funds, everything they need to build the temple. Just like Isaiah prophesied over a hundred years earlier. Have you ever heard of the term Deutero-Isaiah? It means a second Isaiah. This is a false doctrine that comes from liberal theologians. And the reason is, is they said, God is, there's no way that God could know Cyrus's name a hundred years earlier. Somebody else must have written this part of Isaiah and added it on two centuries after the first part was written. How could God know something like that? Well, that's the whole point. He's God. <laughs> You know, they miss the point entirely and, ex and explain away the fact that God is the, creator, is the one who is the God of prophecy. We also have those who deny the creation. Again, God says, I'm the creator. That's how you know I'm not an idol. Idols can't do this. So these two things are very important. Um, and so I can throw in a plug for that creation conference here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I love creation. You can see the glory of God in that. Um, so, you know, as we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, we've seen the fulfillment of prophecy over and over again. And, you know, we've seen God glorified as he works out his plans that he foretold through his prophets decades and even centuries before. And we see his sovereign power, his wisdom, his foreknowledge, all made abundantly clear. It's not just theoretical. We see that it happened. Uh, is proof. And so I want to look at another example of fulfilled prophecy. Now, this is not fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah, but the starting point is in Nehemiah. And we've covered this in our Sunday school class about a month ago. And this prophecy is from Daniel. So let's look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel has been living in Babylon for almost 70 years under the rule of uh, the Babylonians. 
And this chapter is written really in the first year after Babylon fell to the Persians and the Medes. Daniel was aware of another prophecy from Jeremiah that talked about Jerusalem being desolate for 70 years. Well, here he is. He's probably in his 80s. He's seen it's about 70 years after Jerusalem was destroyed, and, and he's beginning to pray to God that, you know, God, restore your people to Jerusalem. And specifically, you know, Jeremiah, you've said through Jeremiah that in 70 years you're going to restore Jerusalem. So he, ripped, he was familiar with God's prophecy, he believed it, and he was praying to God on the basis of what God had said through Jeremiah. Um, and so God rewards Daniel because of his faith in, in God's word. He sends the angel Gabriel to Daniel. Now we read about Gabriel in the New Testament because he's the one who comes to Mary and to Joseph to announce the birth of Christ, that Christ would be coming. So Gabriel comes with a prophecy of not 70 years, but seven times 70 years. And so that's what we have, and we're going to start in verse 24. So these are the words of God through Gabriel to Daniel. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So, in your version, uh, like mine, it probably says 70 weeks. The Hebrew word for weeks is actually just a number seven. So this is 70 sevens have been decreed. Well, 70 times 7 is 490. So we're using that number. And what's the unit of time? Well, probably years. Again, it reflects the fact that Daniel has been praying about Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years, and so now he has been given a prophecy of 7 times 70 years. So going on to verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So this verse gives us a starting point for this 490 years says, the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, this refers to the rebuilding of the city, not the rebuilding of the temple. Those two things happen about 80 years apart. So this is the rebuilding of the city, not the temple. And in a few moments, we'll go to Nehemiah and read that. But he gives us a time period of seven years and then 62 years. And I really don't know why it's divided that way. But together we have 69. 69 sevens. And that adds up to 483 years. Until Messiah the Prince. Well, we know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. So, 483 years from the 
proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Verse 26 gives us a little additional detail on this. Because he says, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. So after the the 62-week period, or the total of 69 weeks, Messiah is cut off. I think most of you can guess at what that event is. This is the crucifixion. Jesus Christ is cut off. He is crucified on the cross. So we have a time period from this decree until the crucifixion. So now we're going to start looking at how this works out. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 2 and let's look at the starting date. I hope you can stay with me on this because we're going to do some multiplying and dividing. You might be thinking, oh no, mathematics. You're getting the double whammy this morning, prophecy and mathematics, but hang in there. When we get to the end, it's really amazing, I think. So, Nehemiah chapter 2, looking at verse 1. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, to King Artaxerxes. Now this was a position of great trust, because it was Nehemiah's job to make sure no one poisoned the king. See, the king trusted him. Um, A lot of responsibility, a lot of influence. Nehemiah was a Jew, and he was one who knew the word of God very well. As we've gone through the book of Nehemiah, we see constant references from the the Mosaic law. The 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. So this is pretty well documented. documented. This is the year 444 B.C. I like that because it's easy to remember. 444 B.C. Nisan was the first month of the year. Typically, calendars began in the spring, often um, on the spring equinox, which is March 21st or March 20th. And that is typically when, when calendars began. Our calendar, our year, originally began with March, not January. So February was the end of the year. That's why we tack the extra day on to the end of February every four years, because it was tacked on to the end of the year. And if you look at the months September, October, November, and December, the prefixes for those, Sep, Oc, uh, Nov, and then Deca, are the Latin prefixes for 7, 8, 9, and 10. December was the 10th month, and February was last month. So that was common of calendars. The first month was in the spring, about the, in March, typically. But it says Nehemiah is sad. And we saw in the end of 
chapter 1 that he was sad because he had heard that Jerusalem's walls had been destroyed, its gates had been burned down. The king sees that he is sad, and so in verses 4 and 5, he asks him, he says, Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. He wants to go rebuild Jerusalem. That's his request. Permission to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And then skipping down to verses 7 and 8, he says, And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. So he asked for these letters, and these letters included the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Specifically, timber would be given to him to build the gates of the walls, timber for a fortress adjacent to the, tab, to the temple, and also for a house for the governor's residence. So this is a rebuilding of, of uh, Jerusalem, which is the starting point that we saw required in Daniel chapter 9. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So this is in Nisan, which is March of 444 B.C. That's our starting line. So, all we need to do now is add 483 years to 444 B.C., and we've got our answer, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Uh, this is where we get into a little bit of mathematics. Um, there's two problems. First, there's no year zero. So you, you have to add one. So if you, and then if you add 483 years to 444 BC plus one, you end up at 40 AD. Was Christ crucified in 40 AD? No. I mean, there's some speculation about when he was crucified. And it ranges from 26 AD to about 36. Nobody thinks it happened in 40 AD. So what's the problem here? This is where we get into problems of calendars. So, if when we think in terms of 444 AD to 30, or BC, excuse me, down to 30 AD, we count years by a complete orbit of the Earth around the Sun. One complete revolution. That's one year, two years. That's how we count years when we start looking at dates like this. So we're, we're seeing um, how many revolutions of the Earth around the Sun from the time the decree was given until uh, Christ's crucifixion. So we'll call that a solar year. It's actually 365 and one quarter days long. Now, what's our calendar? What's a year? Three, 365. Yeah, we don't have a quarter day hanging out there. 
Our calendar is 365 days. The Babylonians had a calendar with 360 days. The Persians used that same calendar. Ancient Greece used that same calendar. Early Rome used that same calendar. So why would they use a calendar that had 360 days? And the reason is it's mathematically much friendlier to work with. 365, which we have, you can divide it by 5 and by 73. That's it. You can divide 360 evenly. Let me go down the list. By 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 12, 15, 18, 20, 24, 30. It is a very friendly number for calculating things. That's also why in a circle we have 360 degrees in a circle. Very nice number mathematically. That's why we have 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour. Same, you end up with the same very friendly numbers. So they used a 360-day calendar. So when God gave this information to Daniel through Gabriel, and Daniel was thinking in terms of a year, he just assumed 360 days. Now, one of the problems we have with human nature, and I, and I see it in myself and I have to guard for it, it shows up in theology a lot, sometimes in science. We pick the verses, we pick the definitions, we pick the data that gives us the results we want. <laughs> right? It's kind of like you can prove anything you want from the scripture if you pick the right verses. So, am I doing that here with this 360-day calendar? I mean, most of the... Evidence points toward 360 days. Do we have biblical evidence? And the answer is yes, we have biblical support. So, hang in there with me. Let's go back to Daniel. We'll look at the last verse of this prophecy. Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel started out with 77s and we've looked at 69 of them. The last one, the final week, the final seven is in verse 27. So we're in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. In the middle of this last week, after three and a half years, something's going to change. And so you have this last week, the last seven is divided in half. First three and a half years, and then the latter three and a half years. The book of Revelation basically covers the last three and a half years. So, let's look at Revelation chapter 12. Now this last week, the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy are completed in the past. You get to this last week, there's a lot of debate about where it is and what it means and has it been fulfilled or will it be fulfilled. And we're not going to get into that. <laughs> um, but Revelation covers that, and, we, and that's what I want to show you. Uh, chapter 12, 
And we'll look at verses 13 and 14. It says, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So a typical explanation of this verse is Satan is persecuting the woman who is Israel. The male child is Christ, the Messiah. And God takes her away into, and nourishes her in the wilderness. But what's interesting here is the amount of time. It says time, times. Where it says times, plural, this is not just more than one. This is actually a form of the word that means two times. So we have one plus two plus a half, three and a half times. So we have three and a half periods, which are years. This is the three and a half years of Daniel, verse 927. So let's back up now in this chapter. So we're still in Revelation chapter 12. Now we'll look at verses 5 and 6. And as you notice, this is almost the same as what we just read. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. So here the child is going to rule the world with a rod of iron. That's the Messiah. That's Christ returning to rule. But instead of three and a half Years, now it says, 1,260 days. <coughs> so three and a half years is equal to 1,260 days. That means that one year is 360 days. <coughs> we also can look back just on and the previous chapter, Revelation 11, just looking at verses 2 and 3. It says, and leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. I will give authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothes and sackcloth. So here we have 42 months mentioned and again the 1260 days. 42 months is four and a half, or three and a half years. And if each month is 30 days long, we've got to have a 360-day year and a total of 1,260 days. So, I don't think we're just picking the number that we want to make things work out. I think the revelation given to John was given in 90 AD. At this time, Rome had a calendar like ours, 365 days. So when John was given this revelation, he did not just assume that a year was 360 days. No, he assumed it was 365. So God had to specifically spell out for him that, no, this prophecy was given to Daniel, and, and, and when we gave it to Daniel, it had 360-day years, not the 365 that you're used to. And so that's why it's spelled out. Okay, so we have to go back and redo our calculations. We are using 360-day years. So, 
in order to uh, bear with me now, <laughs> not too much more math. I hope you got a calculator. I do have one, but I've written the numbers down. Um, let's con how, how many days do we have? If we have 483 years of 360 days each. So we're looking at the decree being given, how many days until a crucifixion? Because a day is the same no matter what your calendar system is. So we'll convert to days. It comes out to be 173,880 days. So, how many times can the earth go around the sun in 1,000, excuse me, 173,880 days? So we're converting it back to solar years. How many revolutions can the earth make in that amount of time? Well, we get 476 revolutions plus an extra 21 days. So, let's go back to 440 BC, 444 BC, add the 476 revolutions around the sun, plus a year because of no zero, and we get 33 AD. That's a reasonable number, 33 AD. Now, is Daniel's prophecy more precise than that? Yes. Because remember, it started in March of the year. We go around to Passover. Passover was in March, first year of the Jewish calendar, which kind of bounces sometimes March and April, depending on whether, since they had a lunar calendar, they couldn't add just one day. They had to add a whole month. So it, that's why Pat, uh, uh, Easter bounces around so much. It's because of the lunar calendar. So we go from, if, if, from March to March. Plus I mentioned we had a few days left over. 21 days, 3 weeks. That pushes it into April. So looking at Daniel's prophecy we end up with a crucifixion occurring in April of 33 AD. Going back to Nehemiah, it does not tell us what day of the month the decree was written. So because we don't have a more precise starting point, we can't get any more precise than that. But that's still pretty good. We're within a week or two of the actual date, probably. Um, can we get something more precise? And the answer is yes. But we have to go from prophecy, now we go back to creation, astronomy. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. That Friday night is a full moon because the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was always on the 15th of the month, which was full moon. So what days do you happen to have a full moon on a Friday, somewhere in this range when Christ was crucified? I mean, every full moon does not happen on a Friday. So as, as it works out, the astronomers can calculate that. 26 AD, 30 AD, 
and 33 AD. The 33 is what matches up with it, Daniel. And in 33 AD, it happened to occur on April 3rd. Again, we talked about being pushed into April. So this really closely matches Daniel's prophecy. And based on the astronomy, it gives us a day, April 3rd, 33 AD. Now, you know, I, this is one of those things that I'm not going to be absolutely dogmatic about, but I don't know any better answer. So we have a good date for here. Now, God gave Daniel this prophecy six centuries before Christ was crucified. And I think it's a chance that this prophecy nailed Christ's crucifixion to the exact day. It could have been that precise. Only God can do this. It is, to me, it's stunning. It's amazing to see this. One of the things that we also looked at was to get the end point right, you had to have the correct starting point. So what were the um, things that led up to Nehemiah asking the king for this decree? One of the things we have is we have the right person in the right place at the right time. And we have a record of that. You know, Joseph was second in command of Egypt. Daniel was taken. He was basically made second in, in Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Esther was queen at a time when the Jews faced extinction. And here we have Nehemiah as a cupbearer to the king at this particular right time. Nehemiah was sad because four months earlier he had heard that Jerusalem had been, the walls had been destroyed and the gates were burned. Well, that's because his brother had traveled from Jerusalem to Susa, which is the capital city in Iran. This is like walking to Los Angeles. This is a long trip. So he had business there. He came with some other Jews. Nehemiah asked him, well, what's, how are things going in Jerusalem? And he said, the walls have been knocked down. The gates have been burned. And Nehemiah just felt this immense grief at what had happened. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city 100 years earlier. So, I mean, it's like, that can't be what he became grieved about because this is old news. When you go back and look at the book of Ezra, you will see that the Jews, during the time of Artaxerxes, so it was the 20th year of Artaxerxes, they had started rebuilding a wall on their own. The trouble is they didn't have a building permit. They hadn't asked Artaxerxes, can we rebuild the wall? No, they hadn't bothered. They just started working. The surrounding nations were their enemies. They complained to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes issued a stop work permit. And he said, do whatever you need to do to stop them. And the, Ezra says, they stopped them by force. It does not mention that they tore down the walls, but that apparently is what happened. They tore down what the Jews had started building. And that is what grieved Nehemiah so much. So you have all these events leading up to Nehemiah going to the king to ask for this proclamation. 
the Jews had started doing what they thought was God's will. And they were defeated by their enemies. And that was absolutely essential part of God's plan. So if you're ever going along and you think you're doing God's work and everything goes bad and you're stopped and you're defeated, that may be exactly where God wants you. We see that in this story. So let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your power, your control over this whole universe, your power over the kings and the rulers. And we thank you for prophecy where we can look back and when we can see the things that you have done and see how you are glorified in them. We just pray that you will help us to uh, learn more and more about all these prophecies throughout your word that have been fulfilled that demonstrate your glory. We pray this in Christ's name.